Hey, sit down listeners. You can find us every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. For us, golf is simple. It's a chance to get out and have some fun with our friends. But inevitably, little things have a way of ruining it. The group ahead is taking forever. You can't find the fairway with a map. And the Bev cart is nowhere to be found. And the best way to make a bad day better is Fireball Whiskey. You get their nips, the little shooters. They are great. Makes a bad day way, way, way better. Make sure to grab the new Fireball Birdie Shot Club. It's literally a golf club filled with Fireball nips. Put it in your bag. It'll fit right in that side pocket. Drink Fireball nips and have a great time on the golf course. Welcome to The Sit Down, a Mafia History Podcast. Here's your host, Jeff Nadu. What's up, everybody? Welcome into another edition of The Sit Down, a Mafia History Podcast. I am your host, the big man on campus, Jeff Nadu. Uh, we are back here another week, another sit down. Uh, we got a great show planned for you today. We always have a great show planned for you. I'll tell you what, it is heating up on the East Coast. A uh, couple of straight days to uh, with the 90s. And I know Blackjack uh, down in Florida where you are, you're, you're kind of used to that. But I'll tell you what, the heat hits you hard here. It takes a lot out of you. But uh, as the weather's heating up, the show's heating up. Another big time episode this week. How you doing? Our uh, counsel Yeri, our, our co-host. And our legal expert, Blackjack Fletcher, joins the show. Blackjack, how are you? Good to talk to you as always. I'm doing fantastic, brother. Yeah, things are getting a little bit hot. Uh, we've been lucky down here in Florida. The humidity has kind of uh, evaded us until now. The last couple of days, you're starting to get that that time of year when you walk to your car and you just break, break a sweat on the way out there. Um, but, you know, listen, brother, it's summertime, right? It's summertime. So it is. And let's just no. enjoy it. And, and we, we lost the summer last year. Yep. We were all stuck inside and now we're not. So let's just, you know what? I don't care if it's a hundred degrees. That's I'm going true. out. That's true. I wouldn't care if it was 150. That's, that's so true. Uh, but as I said, we are heating up here on the show. I've had a lot of great episodes uh, and a lot of great people interacting as the show continues to gain more and more steam. Uh, I seem, seems like every week we're thanking somebody, but you're really just, again, thanking everybody for joining and listening to the show each week. Uh, I was telling you, Blackjack, I uh, I had a proud moment today. I was on Facebook, which, yep. you know, with Facebook, and you know, I don't get on much of it anymore just because it's such a shit show. Uh, but I was scrolling through and there was a mob page, one of these mob pages I follow that, you know, they tweet out uh, questions about the mob and, you know, you know, facts and things like that. Pretty much anyone could comment on it. And I was I was proud because I saw someone said, hey, does... Does anybody know any good mob podcasts? And two people mentioned the show, and I was so happy and proud. Like, I didn't know who they were, never talked to them. I actually contacted the one guy. I was like, hey, man, I'm like, really appreciate it. Um, he said he was a big fan of it. And we seem to be, you know, and I think that's the cool thing about kind of, um, you know, not necessarily marketing or promoting a show, like through, you know, not that we haven't had some big time promotion because we have through, through, friends of ours at Barstool, but, you know, just, um, you know, just, you know, Hey, listen to this. And then that person tells someone else. And you know, before you know it, you know, you're getting, uh, you know, 50, 60,000 listens in a matter of weeks. So, you know, thank you to everybody for, for listening every week. And you know, this is just the beginning. So that was a proud moment for me as a papa of the show here. 
Yeah, man, that's awesome when stuff like that happens. I've noticed it, you know, more and more each week people will will be finding the show and and have really, really nice things to say about it. I have to tell you, Jeff, as, as you know, two guys who have worked in in sports gambling for most of, of what we've done in terms of like public facing work, you know, I don't have to tell you what gambling Twitter's like. It's kind of, you know, hit or miss. Oh, yeah. uh, this has been just a, a great reception. So thank you to everyone who's listening downloading, rating, leaving comments, you know, we love it. And, and listen, make sure if you have any questions, reach out to us because, you know, we, we, we love to answer them. Yeah. And I, I definitely think down the road, we'll have to do like a Q and a show, you know, where we just kind of go through some things. I've also talked with uh, kind of a cool, I think episode we can do involving mob movies. So there's a lot of things coming up and we just obviously have so many people to get into. So uh, we got a big show today. We're going to talk about Anthony Casso uh, gas pipe. Uh, one of um, one of the real uh, interesting people in the history of the mob. And I've always, I, I, you know, whenever you hear about the mob, you always hear about John Gotti or Al Capone. But I, I'm always fascinated that Anthony Casso is not talked about more uh, because Anthony Casso, when you look at who he was, he was a giant. I mean, this is a guy that was making millions of dollars. This is a guy that was, you know, really you know, we've talked, we talk about killers all the time. We talk about dangerous people. We've talked about guys like Tommy Patera and, you know, guys that are real lunatics, but Anthony Casso, no one was off limits when it came to, uh, when it came to his life. And, and if it were women, it were children, it didn't matter. Anthony Casso was a, a, a lunatic, a crazy individual and had a wild life. And I think people are really going to enjoy the show. We've got some really good stuff today as far as what Anthony Casso was involved in. And I always, I'm always fascinated blackjack that Anthony's not talked about more just because of the ruthless guy. He was, he was never a boss, but that was by choice. He could have been a boss uh, and we'll get into why he wasn't, but uh, just a fascinating guy and, and, and a real power and Titan in the business that wasn't a boss. Yeah. I mean, he was mixed in, he was involved in everything, right? Like all of the stuff that, you know, a lot of people are familiar with, he was involved in everything and he's got, you know, what I think is a, a really interesting kind of back half of his story too, which we'll get into. Yeah. I mean, and as we we talk about with, with mobsters, there's always, we talked about it with Whitey Bulger. We'll talk about it with Joe Messina. We've talked about it with Carmine Persico. There's so many different levels, but you know, when you look at Anthony Casso, he really started young. I mean, you could make the case he came out of the womb as a made man in the, the, the mob. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a great, great that's really play. what he was, but he made alliances with Russians, which we'll get into, um, you know, involving the, the gas tax scheme, which Castle was one of the architects of um, really all the way until a wild ending really in his life that we haven't really seen with a lot of mobsters, which no. we'll get into um, just a fascinating, fascinating guy. Let's get into it here. Uh, Anthony Casso on the sit down. Uh, Anthony Salvatore Casso was born May 21st, 1942 in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, his family was from Park Slope, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, northern Brooklyn, per se. I, I guess it's almost considered South Brooklyn. It's getting closer, kind of central Brooklyn, uh, kind of right near uh, kind of Carmen Persco's area. You know, Carroll Gardens, yep. Gowanus, that area, yep. uh, pretty much directly south of, of the Navy Yard of Brooklyn. And you know, as we know, with Brooklyn Blackjack, I mean, a lot of players throughout the years came from Brooklyn. It's it's really the the, the Grand Central Station for the mob. Uh, Anthony Castle was one of three kids. He was actually the youngest, uh, born to uh, his father Michael and mother Margaret. Uh, Anthony's father was 
a mover and shaker in the mob. And Anthony's uh, father hung out. He was a longshoreman on the docks in Brooklyn. And he hung out at a place in Park Slope that was kind of uh, the spot for mobsters, racketeers, labor people. It was called the Democrat Club. Anthony's dad hung out there uh, and really, as a child, groomed Anthony uh, in uh, in mob stuff. Uh, Anthony's uh, father, Michael, was a guy that knew people. He knew a guy called uh, Salvatore Calambrano, which, uh, who was a made man in the Genovese crime family. And Calambrano would kind of connect Michael Casso with uh, a job on the waterfront. And Michael was a guy that would steal. Uh, he was willing to do stuff for the family. He was also willing to, to rough people up, all that sort of thing. Uh, when Anthony was coming up, he uh, would go hunting with his father. And that's where his father kind of realized that Anthony was a bit of a marksman. He was a really good shot. Uh, he was a guy that could handle a gun, a kid that could handle a gun. And um, I think that was his first real kind of uh, connection to, to anything involving violence. But Anthony was quoted as saying later in his life that, you know, around his father and his friends, he would like be dressed up like a little mobster in a suit as a young child. And he was really black chick from his birth, um, kind of initiated into the mob. He, he really had no other way to go. It was almost like, you know, John Gotti Jr. said once that, Whatever his father did, he would have did. So, you know, if his father became a butcher, he would have said, I hope you have a smock for me as well. And, you know, we see this. And, you know, as a child, you know, you, you grow up. And I remember at one point I wanted to work with my dad. You know, it's kind of how things are. So you can't necessarily knock Casso for what he became. But his father was, was kind of a mover and shaker in Brooklyn at the time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, listen, we've talked about guys on this show who have had good relationships with their father and guys who haven't. And, you know, I think it's a natural thing, right? If you're close with your dad, you, you, he's, he's kind of your idol growing up, right? So it makes sense that you, you want to do what he does. And you mentioned Salvatore Calambrano, who was his godfather, right? I mean, right. so, you know, you've got a, a capo in the Genovese family who's your godfather and your father is involved. It's a very natural transition. Yeah, by his teens, Anthony Casso started running around with a local gang called the South Brooklyn Boys. They basically would uh, operate uh, in Carroll Gardens, Cobble Hill, Park Slope, Red Hook. Uh, and, you know, they would obviously have their rivals. But this is where Anthony Casso, as a young man, really started to kind of move and shake uh, around, uh, you know, hoodlums and other people. By 16, he would drop out of school and he would get a job with his father on the Brooklyn docks. And that's where he learned uh, kind of uh, how to steal. Uh, Anthony would talk about uh, later in life about how he would, you know, if he needed money, he would just steal and, and sell it to somebody. You yeah, know, that's kind of how it all worked. And you know, the Brooklyn docks were protected by the mob. So there was a lot of things going on. Uh, as I said, he would continue to um, get better and better shooting uh, guns and he would he'd fire uh, pistols at targets. And, and he really would become known as kind of a marksman. Um, during this time, um, his father would try to scare him straight, though, uh, if, if you know anything about him. Um, for whatever reason, his father would involve him in a lot of things. But I don't think he necessarily wanted his kid to go that route. Um, but it's just how it all went. Uh, by late teens, so basically 19, Anthony Castro has got a pretty uh, rough reputation. He's a guy you don't want to fuck with in the neighborhood. Uh, so Anthony Castro is 19. He's driving down the uh, street and he sees a known drug addict uh, kind of fucking with a woman on the street, bothering her. She had a child with her. Uh, and this guy starts messing with her. Casso sees it, basically approaches the guy, 
they get into an argument and Castor basically pulls out a gun and shoots him in the head. Um, the problem for Anthony Castor by this point is he's a young hothead uh, and the guy that he roughs up and shoots uh, and kills is a uh, Genovese associate, uh, which wasn't good. Uh, obviously, it was a big problem for Anthony Casso. You can't just go around messing with people, uh, particularly guys that were in the mob or connected with the mob. Uh, Casso kind of gets wind that uh, people know about this, and he flees. His dad basically tells him, you got to get out of town for a while. Go to Jersey. Hide out. We'll figure this out. So basically, Michael Casso goes to his connections and tries to broker uh, some kind of deal with the family. Now, before this happens, he comes in contact with uh, some police officials that basically say, look, for 50K, uh, we'll make this go away. Michael Casso, yeah, make Mike, at this point it is. This is in the 60s. Uh, Michael Casso basically says, um, you know, that's too much. Uh, we'll pass, uh, which is a wild move in, in, in its own sense. Because I feel like at that point, you're kind of just willing to pay whatever to get out of something. But uh, he basically goes to uh, the family of this kid and they arrange a sit down. Uh, Genovese people are there and he brokers a deal to pay the family uh, that the son. And, and from, from what I understand, there's conflicting reports that the kid, they initially thought he died, but he somehow survives or something. Yeah. So it was an attempted murder. And the kid, basically, they pay him to not say anything. He has uh, delusions of grandeur around the time that he's supposed to testify and the case never goes anywhere. So early on, as we've seen with a lot of mob guys, they don't get disciplined early in their life. And it just emboldens them to be bigger criminals down the road. But Anthony Casso by 19 is committing, you know, attempted murder. Who knows if he killed anyone by that point? He probably had. Uh, but he's not only gaining um, carte blanche to kind of do what he wants. He has connections. He can get out of things. Uh, and he starts to kind of uh, get... Uh, get the eye of, of local people in the area. Yeah. I mean, two things with, with his kind of early career, we've seen other guys, you know, commit murders at young ages. Carmine Persico comes to mind, yep. but they were always done at the direction of someone else. Casso just went off on his own and started committing murders at 19, which is kind of a wild thing to do. Like you said, he just kind of stumbled on this and decided he was going to shoot this guy. So that's a little different. The other thing is, my God, it must have been so easy to get away with crime back in the 60s, the 50s, 60s. Yeah. Like, I mean, man, I don't know why anyone worked a legitimate job. These guys would get popped for this stuff and you just buy your way out of it. You know, occasionally you get, uh, you know, when you're doing Periscope or something, occasionally you'll get like uh, the question of like, what would you do? Like, what era would you want to live in? And like, I'd be honest, if I grew up like when my parents grew up, I'd have definitely become a mobster, like for sure. Oh, because, dude, I was born 40 years too late. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's not even like even the, the, the criminal activity element of it. But like, you know, just I, life just seemed like it was there for the taking in like the 60s. Like if you, you know, if you had any sort of like ambition and you could do it or education. Yeah. yeah, you could just kind of go and do stuff. Yeah, no, you're totally right. By 21, uh, for Anthony Castle, 1963, uh, he starts getting um, kind of groomed in a way. He, he catches the eye of a guy in the neighborhood by the name of uh, Christy, uh, Christy Tick Fineri. Uh, Fineri was a capo in the Lucchese crime family. He operated out of uh, a social club called the 19th Hole, and he kind of catches the eye. Uh, 
Fenari kind of takes him under his wing, realizes that Casso is, uh, you know, kind of a guy you don't want to fuck with. He can fight. Uh, he's not the biggest guy in the world, but he's a tough uh, little guy, and uh, he can uh, kind of be groomed as kind of a protege of, of Fenari. And that's where he kind of starts his career in the mob. Uh, Casso becomes a loan shark, opens a book, uh, kind of starts to, uh, you know, make money and uh, learns kind of the different rackets. Uh, in the early 70s, he would be called on to uh, commit murder. And, and this is where for him, uh, he decides, uh, you know, this is my life. This is what I'm going to do. Uh, and um, he commits a murder. In 1971, uh, there was a um, there was a drug dealer called Lee Scheifler uh, in Brooklyn that was, uh, from what Fenari told Anthony, he was going to become an informant. Uh, he had to go and Castle gets the job. Uh, Casso kills him and becomes a made man. In 1974, at the age 32, he becomes a full-time member of the Lucchese crime family. Casso would operate out of um, out of a, a, a social club called the 19th Hole, and he would be part of Vincent Fischetti's uh, crew uh, in uh, Manhattan and in Brooklyn. Uh, and this is where he would kind of meet a guy that would kind of surround him in life really till the end. Uh, he met a rising star by the name of Victor Amuso, uh, who was like him, uh, a young and petty criminal. Kind of think of it the way Henry Hill in Goodfellas meets Tommy, and they kind of start doing stuff together, and they kind of last and become friends forever. Uh, they were both hotheads. They were both uh, people that were willing to uh, do anything, and they both had the thought of they were going to make a whole lot of money together. Uh, and they started committing all sorts of scores. They started getting involved, in, uh, involved with drug trafficking, burglary, um, bookmaking, loan sharking, uh, extortion. They would kill um, informants, really anything that needed to be done for the family, uh, they would do. Uh, at that point, Anthony starts reporting directly to Christy Tickfinary, which uh, for him was perfect. That was his mentor in a business and really kind of grew him up. Um, as they kind of you know, begin to create these schemes, Anthony was a master burglar. Okay, this was a guy that uh, really could steal anything. And what Anthony realized is that he was going to create kind of a who's who dream team of safe crackers, locksmiths, people that were particularly strong experts in security alarms. And they were going to basically create a gang and a crew that would burglarize high end businesses, banks jewelry stores, you know, check cashing play, all sorts of places. And they would later be known as the bypass gang. And Anthony Castle would have high end blow torches that could burn through locks, like all sorts of things. And it was estimated that in New York and Long Island, the crew would steal over a hundred million dollars from safe deposit boxes, vaults, jewelry stores, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and this is where in the 70s, Anthony Casso really started to amass a large amount of money. I mean, that's a whole lot of money, Blackjack. And, you know, to create a dream team at that level, to be that smart to do that, Anthony Casso had some brains to go along with his brawn. I mean, he had brains. He also had a, a fairly large set of balls because, I mean, let's be honest here. Like, we were just talking about how you could get away with a lot of crime back in the 60s, 70s. You know, robbing banks, jewelry stores, you know, places like that, those were still crimes that drew a lot of attention, right? Like, even then, those were things that were not going to go quietly. 
You know, you walk into a bank and start robbing vaults and safe deposit boxes that draws attention. It draws eyeballs, but he was just so damn good at it. And like you said, he assembled this team, which is, you know, it's, I'm not going to say it's incredibly rare, but we've seen a lot of guys in the mob. They're kind of leery of other people, right? I mean, you know, they're not necessarily the most trusting people in the world. He put this team together and they, they did their thing, man to the tune of a hundred million dollars that makes him a star yeah and and at this point um he's making a whole hell of a lot of money not only for Freneri but the Lucchese crime family uh you know the boss of the family Tony Ducks Crowell knew who Anthony Castle was at this point um and when Freneri would become the consigliere of the family he would kind of elevate himself he asked Anthony to take over the crew of the 19th hole but Anthony and this is where Anthony has brains, man. You, you could tell he was a smart guy. Uh, Casso realized that heading a crew, being an underboss, being a boss someday, that's going to attract a whole lot of attention. Uh, he wanted other guys to take the fall. And while, you know, Musa was a friend, he was willing to allow Musa to be promoted and say, you know what, you take that job. I'll kind of advise you. But if the cops come calling, they're going to come after you, not necessarily yeah. me. And it's smart, too, because, you know, we talked about you know, in the past, guys like Joe Messino, who who would surround themselves with their family and things like that, and how it kind of, it sours guys, right? Like they get a little sour on the fact that, you know, they're not getting their shot. This is the opposite, right? Like you've got to think that when he does this, that Vic Amuso is, feels indebted to him in a way, right? Like he passed up a promotion to give it to him. Yeah, I mean, he... um but but I think it was all kind of a, a bigger thought in his head yep. that he knew down the road that it, it would take a lot more to to kind of get to him if, if other people were in front of him. And, you know, it worked for a long, long, long time. Uh, by this point, uh, Anthony and uh, Vic Amuso are, are kind of partners and they're making a whole lot of money. Um, one of the ways that Anthony kind of really came on after the bank robbery stuff and and the whole or the bypass gang was he develops a relationship with an individual called Merit Balagula. Merit Balagula was a Russian mobster. Uh, Balagula basically came over to this country from from Russia. Uh, He ascends to the top of the Russian mob in Brighton Beach and basically has hundreds of gas stations up and down the East coast, a lot of them in New York, but he has tons of gas stations. And at the time, you know, in the eighties, late seventies, New York was basically making their, uh, there was a gas tax that you had to pay on each gallon of gas. I think it was like 25 cents. And Balagula devised this scheme where he would create like a daisy chain of companies and there were so many companies that weren't really companies. And by the end of it, it was just kind of running through nonsense to get the nonsense. And by that point you could steal all the tax. So basically 25 cents doesn't sound like a lot, right? But keep in mind, it was on every gallon of gas pumped at those locations. It's a lot of gas, right? So we're talking millions of dollars a month. And again, I know Michael Franzese will try to say that he created this. He didn't create it. Merit Balagula created it. Balagula becomes connected to Anthony Casso. They become a kind of associates and Casso starts uh, muscling into this gas scheme. And 
Michael Frances gets wind of this. And and this is where, look, Michael's smart. I, 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 I'll give it to him for this. Michael basically goes to Balagula and, and, and tells them, tells them, look, um, you got to start cutting us in as well. The Columbo's want to be a part of this. Balagula goes to Castro and Frenari and says, hey, look, you know, another family starting to muscle into this. What do you want to do about it? Frenari decides we're not going to create a war over this. There's a ton of money here for a lot of people. Why don't we just cut everybody in? We can all get rich off this. Nobody's going to hurt, and we're all going to make a ton of money. And this would be regarded as one of the biggest money-making schemes the mob's ever had. Again, at, at the height of this, Anthony Castro and the Lucchese's were bringing in a million dollars a month just off this gas tax scheme. The problem for Balagula was, and this would create a real issue for him, and it would make a problem for Anthony Casso. Balagula was considered in Brighton Beach to kind of be untouchable. Nobody fucked around with him. People were scared of him. But I think a lot of it was just by reputation, and it wasn't necessarily true. He was one of those all bark, no bite kind of guys at the end of the day. And there was an individual in Brighton Beach that was his rival, uh, a guy called Vladimir Reznikov. Now, again, Blackjack, over the years, I've studied tons of different uh, criminal organizations, whether it's Russians, uh, Latin American, Albanian, Asian, Italian, Irish, whatever. I think you could make a strong case. Vladimir Reznikov is one of the most dangerous biggest lunatics I've ever encountered. Reznikov was a guy that had no issue killing you, coming into your house, killing you, eliminating your entire family, lighting it on fire and blowing the house up and walking out smiling and laughing. That's the kind of individual Reznikov was. If he walked into a building, you got the fuck out of the way and ran. Reznikov was a lunatic. He hated Balagula. He thought it was a pussy, a bitch. He basically kowtowed to the Italians. Why are you letting this guy, these guys dictate you could be rich? Why are you letting them in on stuff? He basically believed Reznikov that he should be cut into this as well. So he gets wind of what's going on and that Balagula is kowtowing to Anthony Casso and the rest of the mob. Reznikov goes to the Midwood section of Brooklyn where Balagula has a office building that he runs business out of. He basically walks in with an AK-47 and lights the building up, killing one of Balagula's close associates and several people that worked in the building. He wounds and kills some people. On June 12, 1986, if that wasn't a good enough message to Balagula, Reznikov enters a nightclub in Brighton Beach that Balagula owns. Bouncers were so scared of this guy, they didn't even try to get in his way. They just saw him coming and walked out. Uh, he walks in locates where Balagul is and basically tells him that with a gun to his head, if he doesn't give him $600,000, he's going to blow his head off. Uh, as usual, Balagula runs to Casso because he knows that um, this guy's trying to muscle in. He's going to kill me and my family. And he wants a percentage. Balagula was so scared that he had a heart attack on his kitchen floor, basically um, because he was so scared. He didn't want to go to the hospital. So Casso realizes, look, um, we can we can eliminate this guy. Just tell him, look, we'll get your money. Meet us at the club tomorrow. So they contact Reznikov. Reznikov decides, all right, I'll be there tomorrow. The next day, Reznikov shows up to, for his money. When he arrives, he finds out that, uh, you know, there's no Balagula. And that was that. 
uh, he was uh, furious. He's going to go to Balagula's house and find this fuck and kill him and his family. The problem was, as he walks back to the car, uh, Casso basically farms the hit out to a hit squad uh, from the DeMeo crew and the Gambinos of Joe Testa and Anthony Center. They basically eliminate Reznikov, which I'll be honest, Reznikov was an animal. Um, you know, you didn't want him anywhere near anyone. He was a complete danger to society. He would kill anyone. It didn't matter who it was. Uh, after that, Casso would claim to merit Balagula. You won't have any problems with any other Russians. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine you would, right? I mean, after Reznikov gets knocked off, I mean, who out there is more dangerous or a worse guy than this dude? So, I mean, if you take him out, I, I can't imagine there was much more of a level up to anyone else. I mean, that that, that it sends a message. No, and it did. Um and the gas tax scheme would continue and all the families would make money uh, and they would make a lot of money. Um, in December of 1985, obviously, as we know, because we've done the John Gotti episode, uh, Anthony Casso was approached by Frank DeChico, who is a Gambino family capo regime. Uh, and he basically tells Casso, look, John Gotti and others are planning a coup attempt and are going to kill Paul Castellano. Uh Casso, in his cunning um, kind of attitude, kind of just says, oh, okay, whatever, uh, do what you got to do, whatever. Uh, but deep down, Casso was furious about it. He didn't want it to happen. He knew Paul. He liked Paul. Uh, and he tried, according to him, to talk to Chico out of participating in the coup, warning him that without official sanction, all participants would be murdered. As we know, um, the hit would go off again on December 16th. And Casso would later call Gotti's actions as the beginning of the end of our thing. So Anthony Casso was furious about this. And there was a lot of people that were pissed off. Vincent Giganti was pissed. Anthony Corallo, who was the boss of Lucchese's, was pissed. Casso was pissed. And this would send them into a tizzy, as Casso warned. Basically, after the hit goes down, Vincent Giganti and Corallo decide that Johnny Boy... Frank DeChico and everybody else involved has to go. And he, in typical Anthony Corallo fashion, goes to Casso and Amuso and says, look, Johnny Boy's got to go, and so does DeChico. Uh, but we want to do this in a secretive way. At this point in New York, nobody was blowing people up blackjack it was not going on the only people that were doing that were the sicilians the actual sicilian mobsters so what casso and amuso figure out is if we make this look like a bombing they won't suspect it's us so they rig a car outside of a social club where Gotti and DeChico are to basically blow up when they turn the keys the problem was on that day in 1986, in April, DeChico and John are scheduled to leave at the same time. Gotti decides at the last minute he's not going to go to Manhattan, and it's DeChico only with an unidentified passenger. As DeChico turns the car on outside of the social club, it blows up and DeChico's killed. Gotti finds out about this. They find out about this, the Gambinos, and basically this would become a real problem for Anthony Casso. Yeah, I mean, listen, if you're going to do something like that, you damn well better not miss, right? I mean, you, you better get it right. And 
it's it's kind of ironic because listen, I we've talked about this in the Gotti episode that yes, there were a lot of people that were unhappy with what John Gotti did. You, you killed a boss without approval of the commission. That is as big a no-no as there is. But what Casso did really wasn't much better, right? I mean, you kind of went out on your own and tried to take these guys out yourself. So at this point, you're kind of teetering on the brink of war, which is not good for anybody. Right, and that's kind of what happens. So Anthony Casso obviously was a homicidal maniac. He realizes um, you know, that uh, he's going to have some problems here. Um, and this is where an attempt on his life happens. Basically, uh, weeks after this happens, Anthony Casso's in Brooklyn. He's eating an ice cream cone. Uh, in his car, which is funny to think about. It is. Um, when two gunmen approach his vehicle. And we talked about this during the Mafia Cops episode. Um, the the shooters were a guy called Nicholas Guido and another low-level Gambino associate, Jimmy Heidel. Uh, they shoot Casso, but they don't kill Casso. Casso manages to um, crawl into a store, basically, and, and, and survives. Uh Casso, though, as we said, is a maniac and was not going to allow individuals to, uh, even though he tried to kill people, he was not going to allow people to try to kill him and get over on him. Um, and at this point, Anthony Casso's made a connection, as we talked about in the Mafia Cops episode, with a guy, Burton Kaplan, who introduces him to Louis Caracapa and Stephen, uh, Louis Epolito and Stephen Caracapa, who were NYPD um organized crime uh, cops. Uh, he gets them on the payroll. They start feeding him information. So he basically tasks these two cops to figure out who killed them. Through police work, according to them, they figure out it's Heidel. They find Heidel, um, and Castro not only kills him, but tortures him in the process. Uh, we've talked about what happened with Nicholas Guido. They end up killing the wrong Nicky Guido. Uh, it was a whole lot of problems for um, for Castro. But Casso achieves what he wants. Um, weirdly enough, though, Casso never goes after John Gotti again or Angie Ruggiero. Ruggiero was involved as well. Um, never goes after them. He just goes after uh, direct leadership. But he knew who killed him. And that was always kind of an interesting thing that Casso never really tried to go after Gotti after that. Because while he tortured Heidel, he would try to get the info out of him. And he ends up getting the info out of him. But um you weren't going to try to kill Anthony Casso and just get away with it. No, I mean, obviously not, you know, but at this point, you know, you mentioned that they don't go back for Gotti or Ruggiero. I think at this point, John Gotti was just too high profile. Exactly. I mean, there's just no way you can, you know, at some point you, you can be pissed off, but you've got to take your foot off the gas out of self-preservation. Exactly. Uh, by November, 1986, um, the commission trial was happening and this is where all the big bosses got jammed up and kind of sensed that, uh, all of the high level bosses, whether it was Corallo, Castellano, well, Castellano had died by this point, but Salerno, uh, Corallo, Philly, Rusty Ristelli, all these guys, uh, they were going to go away for life. And, the Lucchese's were always smart because they were always willing to have seamless transfers of power. Tony Ducks Crowler wanted Anthony Casso to be the boss. However, Casso again turns it down uh, and says that Vic Amusa should be the new boss um, and that Casso should be consigliere after Fenari was jabbed up as well in the commission case. So this is where Amusa and Casso basically take control 
of the Lucchese crime family. And another cunning move by Casso to not be the direct uh, kind of fall guy. Uh, as we know, the boss is always the fall guy. Well, at the top of the family, this is where Victor Amuso and Anthony Casso start raking in more and more profits. And when I tell you Anthony was a rich man by this point, I'm not kidding. Um, not only were they making money from the gas tax scheme, but Anthony was making money through a whole lot of different things. He was making uh, 20 grand a month from uh, various Long Island garbage hauling companies. Uh, he was making money from uh, labor uh, things with unions, uh, illegal poker machines. He was therefore earning over 240 grand from a major concrete company. Uh, he had money in the garment district. Uh, he was cutting uh, loans to people. Uh, he was involved with obviously getting um, cuts of every soldier's uh, business as well. He also was splitting $800,000 between him and Amuso uh, in robbing steel from construction sites uh, on the West Side Highway. Um, so this was a guy that was making a whole hell of a lot of money. Add in the fact that he controlled Greek-American uh, gangster uh, George Kalak. Calicalis, and uh, he kind of staked him uh, in, in some loan sharking stuff. So there was a lot going on. Anthony Castle was making a lot of money and he was spending a lot of money. By this point, he was married. He had kids. He moved his family to a, a, a real eyesore of a home that he built uh, in Brooklyn. And, and in fact, uh, it's actually still there, Blackjack, the home. Um, it, it's one of the ugliest houses in the history of the mob. Uh, if you actually search Anthony Casso house, uh, you can find it. It's in Mill Basin, Brooklyn. Uh, it's a really odd looking home, um, but um, it's pretty as well. It's kind of right on the water. It's a nice looking home, uh, but it's also weird looking too. Uh, but he was spending extravagantly. There was talks that he had a, a diamond ring that was worth over $100,000. Uh, he loved high-end suits. He had the zeal of John Gotti, just didn't get in the kind of uh, limelight like John Gotti. Yeah, he didn't crave the spotlight the way John Gotti did. I think he very much enjoyed the same lifestyle, but he didn't need the attention and the spotlight the way Gotti did. I think he, he shunned it, in fact, is, is what we've seen through most of his actions. Yeah, but again, this was a guy making millions of dollars, and he was basically pulling the strings in the Lucchese crime family. Uh, by 1991, though, um, things were beginning to kind of unravel in the Lucchese family. There were starting to become um, people that were becoming informants. Um, you know, things were happening. Things were moving. Uh, in 1991, um, there was a confidant of Anthony Casso that would do something that really made Anthony Casso delve into we weird things that no one in Cosa Nostra really did, but Anthony Castle went to kind of some levels that were kind of something that even the wildest mobster doesn't do. Um, there was a guy that was part of Castle's crew, Peter Chiodo. Uh, they called him fat Peter Chiodo. Fat Peter Chiodo was, uh, was fat. Uh, he was about 500 pounds. Uh, he was an, a huge individual. Uh, but he was an earner. He was a leg breaker. He was an earner and he was a trusted confidant of Anthony Casso. He gets jammed up in the windows case, which if you followed the Giganti show, uh, basically the mob was uh, involved in a scheme with the New York housing authority where they were 
uh, basically defrauding the housing authority and windows contracts. And Peter Chiodo was a part of that cohort. He gets jammed up in that and decides to uh, plead guilty without the approval of the family, which was a complete no-no. You never plead guilty. Uh, you never accept a plea. Uh, that was kind of the rules. At that point, Casso gets wind of it and orders Chiodo to be killed. And in 1991, five Lucchese assassins ambushed Chiodo in a black van. They had Uzi machine guns in Staten Island where he was uh, with a friend of his. They shoot Peter Chiodo 21 times. Woo. But due to Peter Chiodo being so fat, doctors would credit his large frame for saving his life. Um, it's always said that if, if, if you shoot somebody big, you got to shoot them a lot of times. Uh, and it's wild because at this point, Peter Chiodo decides that they're going to kill me. They've basically, um, you know, I'm done. I'm going to become a witness. And he decides to flip. Keep in mind, he had 21 bullets inside I of mean, him. It, tough to blame a guy there when you've been shot 21 times. Right. Uh, at that point, the FBI grabs Chiodo's wife and children uh, after he's told that they'll be killed uh, and they go into witness protection. Um, not only would he cooperate, but little Al Diarco would as well, uh, a, a, an individual that was part of the crime family as well. And they would both become witnesses. Uh, in 1991, using a wheelchair, Fat Peter Chiodo would testify in the Windows case. He would state that he had undergone a transformation from a violent, ruthless gangster to a man with a conscience. Um, and when he was asked why, he said, I was shot 21 times. That was his <laughs> I mean, response. I mean, that's a fair answer, man. It yeah. is. You know, listen, we talk about rats and whatnot, but that is a fair answer. You were shot 21 times. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it's it's as good a reason as anyone to uh, really kind of change your life around. Uh, this is where Anthony Casso would go too far, though. Uh, he decides um, after cooperating, he believes that Peter Chiodo's family needs to pay for Peter Chiodo's cooperating. Now, they can't get to Peter Chiodo's immediate family, but they can get to his uh, brothers, his sisters, possibly. In 1992, um, hitmen by the name of uh, Michael Spinelli uh, basically ambush Peter Chiodo's sister and her husband outside of their Bensonhurst, Brooklyn home. A hit squad kind of sees Patricia Capazzolo and Frank Capazzolo uh, getting out of their car to go into their house. Uh, and they basically open fire on Patricia and her husband. Uh, Patricia suffers wounds to her arms, back, uh, and head, uh, and they almost blow the car up. They also kill her husband. She would leave New York and quickly move to Canada. She changed her first and last name. And from what I understand, is still in a wheelchair, as far as I know. Um, but this is where Anthony Casa really starts to unravel. Uh, he's killing people uh, that aren't involved in the, the life. Uh, he would also uh, kill two of Peter Chiodo's cousins, a guy called Frank Sin Signorino uh, and a, uh, another cousin called Catherine Signorino. Um, th th this was just too far. Uh, and people were getting yeah. sick and tired of Anthony Casso. Uh, Anthony Casso is becoming a complete lunatic. The problem that Casso would have is 
and we didn't really talk too much about this, but in the late 70s, Casso's father died. And from what authors would talk about years later, Anthony Casso became a different person at that point. And that's where he started doing some of this real ruthless stuff. Um, look, again, people that are not involved with the mob have been killed by the mob. Uh, it's not completely not happening. It's not happening much, but it does happen. Um, this went too far, obviously. And, and, and people that were not involved with the life were immediately killed. Yeah, this is tough to defend. Like it's it's tough to hear and even to talk about, right? Because when you start going after family members and people who really are are innocent in this, that's that's you're really crossing a bridge too far here. And Casso seemed to do it without any sort of hesitation and was willing to continue to do it. And that's listen, we talk all the time about you need to avoid drawing attention to yourself. Killing civilians who have nothing to do with the mafia is an easy way to draw attention to yourself. It's not a good thing. Yeah, and in all, uh, Casso would actually kill uh, five of Chiodo's closest friends and associates and or cousins uh, or family members. Uh, almost all of his immediate family and friends were either brutally attacked, killed, or injured by the Lucchese crime family. Uh, nonetheless, it would not stop Peter Chiodo from testifying uh, not only would he help convict the Musso and Casso down the road, but he would also convict uh, Vincent Giganti uh, as well. Uh, it's interesting to note that while testifying in different cities, uh, Peter Chiodo was so fat that the government would have to provide a special plane uh, to transport him. Um, keep in mind, Peter Chiodo was sentenced to 17 years in prison in 2007. However, due to his testimony, he didn't serve one minute in prison. Uh, he was in the witness protection program where he died in 2019. So, um, you know, Peter Chiodo was a tough dude. Uh, at the end of the day, he was an informant. But, um, you know, there are certain cases uh, where being an informant will really hurt you, but it won't hurt anyone else. Peter Chiodo, it hurt a lot of people by him being involved with the mob. And I'm sure in looking back at his life before he died, he realized that. Uh, Casso would not only do uh, all that to people like Chiodo and Little Al Diarca, but in an incident in 1993, uh, Casso would use Brooklyn faction leaders George Zapolo and Frank uh, Papagnani uh, to kill uh, Stephen Wonderboy Crea, who is a uh, part of the Lucchese crime family in the Bronx. Uh, however, due to massive indictments at the time, all members of the plot were eventually incarcerated, including Casso, who in Jan on January 19, 1993, would be arrested at a home of his mistress in Mount Olive, New Jersey. So it was all over for Anthony Casso by this point. Uh, he would be held at the New York Metropolitan Correctional Center in Brooklyn. Uh, and facing charges, he would basically be put away for life. He was never going to get out of jail. Uh, Casso decided, you know what? I'm going to try to escape. Uh, and he almost actually succeeded. Uh, he ended up bribing a guard uh, that would clear him through security and he nearly walked out. But as he walked out, another guard spotted him and he was picked up and put back into custody. Um, he would also try to make uh, an escape plan by uh, finding out what prison buses would be transporting him and arrange some sort of wild ambush. He also would attempt to assassinate the judge in the case, Eugene Nickerson, to buy more time. So Anthony Casso was off the deep end by this point. He was killing family of people. He was trying to kill judges. He was trying to escape prison. He was a complete grade A lunatic by this point.
Yeah, I mean, listen, just stuff that you can't do. Again, we talked about this with Carmine Persico, right? Like, you you can't be going after judges and stuff. Like, this is just going to be a total unmitigated disaster. So, you know, this is you you hit the nail on the head, Jeff. This is a guy who is totally off the rails here. He's uncontrollable. He's become a complete lunatic. And, you know, when that happens, things don't usually go well. Yeah, and by this point, um, it was over for Casso. Uh, Victor Musso was absolutely done with Casso, uh, and he was sick and tired of his nonsense. Uh, he not only stripped Casso of underboss title, but declared that all mafioso and Lucchese family uh, would consider him basically a pariah uh, and banished him from the family. Uh, he was sick and tired of this. The nonsense had to stop, um, and he did it to himself, basically. Uh Casso kind of realizes that uh, he has nowhere else to go. Uh, he has multiple people that are going to testify against him, including Peter Chiotto and little Al Diarco. Uh, and really he realizes he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. He needs to try to create something. Um, so at that point, Casso offers to become an informant. Uh, he finalizes a plea agreement where he pleads guilty to 70 crimes including racketeering, extortion, and 15 murderers. Um, they would also say, though, later that they feared he would be acquitted. Um, so with the guilty plea, it would kind of tie up any loose ends they have. They place him in the witness protection program. Um, he would also, at this point, kind of disclose some information that nobody knew. Uh, at this point, he would say that on an interview he did with 60 Minutes with Ed Bradley that he had two retired NYPD detectives on his payroll. And this is where Karakop and Apolito uh, would have their downfall as well. Uh, they would eventually, as we know, go uh, to prison for life. Uh, he would also say as well that he had an FBI agent on his payroll, but that was never proven. The problem that Casso had was he wasn't very believable. Um, and he was also trying to, uh, and this enraged the FBI, he was also trying to turn uh, Sammy Gravato into a drug dealer basically and that didn't look good for the government black guys you know that was their main jewel from a witness standpoint you weren't gonna belittle sammy gravano and get away with it my, my question to you jeff is this yeah is there anybody that the fbi would turn around and say you know what you're just too bad of a guy for us to cut a deal with yeah that's the thing I mean, not that i know of the guys they cut deals with yeah I mean, real shit so was a fucking lunatic yes a mass murderer sammy gravano 19 dead bodies to his credit that we know of and yet you're willing to just cut these deals left and right i mean it really makes you wonder sometimes like is there anybody that could have shown up at their door that they would have been like yeah i don't think so yeah, I mean, it doesn't happen much. The fact that they've they actually the fact that they ever started making deals with people like this is wild. But um, yes, to, to not only make deals, but then to actually turn it around and say, you know what, you're too much of a fucking nut to actually cut a deal with. Uh, but yeah, he was pissing on their leg basically. Uh, he was trying to make Gravano out to be a, a scumbag, which he was. But that was the crown jewel for the U.S. government. They weren't going to allow it to happen. Um, by 1998. Uh, Anthony Casso uh, would actually be removed from the witness protection program. So basically the deal would be ripped up the cooperation agreement um, after multiple infractions would happen in 1997 Casso would be uh, basically indicted for bribing guards, assaulting other inmates and making those false statements about Gravano and little Al Diarco. 
Uh, Castro's attorney would try to get the judge in the case to overrule federal prosecutors, uh, but Block, uh, who was the judge, refused to do so. Basically, at that point, it was the end for Anthony Casso. Uh, he didn't have the ability to fall back on his testimony. He was a rat, though, in most people's eyes, even though he really wasn't. He never actually copped anything uh, after that fact. Uh, Judge Block would sentence Anthony Casso to 455 years in prison without the possibility of, of parole. So basically a life sentence. Um, and Casso would become enraged. He later told the New York Times a Selwyn Rab before turning informant that he was seriously considering a deal that would allow him the possibility of parole after 22 years. He basically said, I help them and I get life without parole. This is really a fucking joke. Casso lost two subsequent appeals to get his sentence reduced. And in a letter penned to author Philip Carlo, he would say this about his decision. I'm truly regretful that I made this decision to cooperate with the government. It was against all my beliefs and upbringing. I've known for certain, had my father been alive, I would never have done this. I've disgraced my family, my heritage. I lost the respect of my children, close friends, and most probably added to the sudden death of my wife and confidant for over 35 years. Keep in mind, Anthony Casa was a known uh, cheater of his wife. Philanderer, yes. Yeah, that so was, he, he's got an interesting quote about that. But th th this ahead. was also an individual that killed multiple family members of people and innocent individuals. Yeah. Uh, he also would say, I wish the clock could be turned back only to bring her back. I've never in my life informed on anyone, which is not true. Sammy Gravano would disagree. Yeah. And he also was known that he had 302 sessions. I've always hated rats. And as strange as it may sound, I still do. I hate myself. Day after day, it would have definitely been different if the government had been honest from inception. I would have had a second chance to start a new life and my wife Lillian would be alive. It seems that the only people the government award freedom to are the ones who give pre prejudice, prejudice, uh, sorry, testimony to win convictions. The truth will set you free means nothing in federal courts. Even at this point in my life, I consider myself to be a better man than most of the people on the streets these days. Um, so at this point, Anthony Kaiser still has this warped, yeah. photo of who he is um and i would imagine this really sickened the government because for as bad as the government is um you know they didn't really have any other choice anthony castle was a fucking psychopath he didn't belong on the streets no uh and they had to do what they had to do he's the one that was told what you can and cannot do as a witness protection program member and he did it anyway uh, and when he you shit, the shit in their leg, they're not going to forget about that. No, he spent the first half of that quote you just read talking about how he, he didn't want to do this. It goes against everything in his upbringing and his heritage and his family. And he, he regrets it. And then the last part of it is, well, it would have been different if the government would have protected me better. So, like, you don't regret it. You regret that, that it, it didn't work out for you. That's the only regret you've got. Yeah, You're a self-interested person, period. Yeah. And again, this is a guy that all he talks about is how his family and all this stuff. This is a guy that killed multiple people that were not in the life. They had nothing to do with it. He did it just to, to do it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the government wasn't going to give him any leniency. That's why they gave him 455 years without parole. Uh, they also would hit him hard. They would sentence him to the uh, Admax facility uh, in uh, Florence, which is the worst prison on earth, probably. Um, 
So the government wasn't going to leave any stone unturned. Uh, in fact, I'm, a- I'm actually surprised that he ever left Florence. But um, a- after this would happen, in 2009, Anthony Casso would get prostate cancer and would be transferred to uh, uh, FCC Butner, which is a uh, medical prison in uh, North Carolina. He would then be returned uh, in July 2009. And by that point, he was really sick. Uh, he kind of would move around through Springfield and into different uh, halfway homes and things of that nature. Uh, he would finally be transferred to Terre Haute and then to uh, Tucson. Uh, and on uh, November 5th, 2020, Anthony Casso would test positive for COVID-19. Uh, and while incarcerated, he would actually, on November 9th of last year, he requested through his lawyers uh, a compassionate release. Uh, but at this point, Anthony Casso was a ba- in bad shape. Uh, he had um, a respiratory issue. He was on a ventilator. COVID-19 really hurt him. He had kidney disease, hypertension, lung issues, carotid artery disease, prostate cancer. He was basically a walking issue for COVID-19. And, you know, this is through years of beating his body up. Uh, so his lawyers file for compassionate release. There was no way he was going to get a compassionate release. Uh, on November 28th, the motion was denied by the United States government. And by no- December 15th, 2020, Anthony Casa would die from coronavirus complications at the age of 78. So Casa actually just passed away. I actually remember blogging about that when I was at Barstool. Um, he, um, he was never going to get any sort of olive branch from the federal government. Um, it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, he had he had dissed them too many times and really kind of, uh, I think aggravated them to no end. Uh, I think the, the thought that I'll give as we wrap Anthony Cass up and then I'll get your opinion. I've always said, I think he's one of the most fascinating people in the history of the mafia. Uh, he had a wild life. He made a ton of money. He was a lunatic. He messed around with a lot of wild people and you know, he's a guy that was credited for killing a, a person like, you know, Vladimir Reznikov, who was probably more of a lunatic than he was. Uh, he made a ton of money, but he also had a ton of transgressions. And when his father died, he became a different person. And not only um, did he do things the right way, but when he started killing, um, you know, people, you know, like uh, like Chiodo's father or uh, husband-in-law or whatever or whoever, uh it just got too much. And weirdly enough, the government was still willing to forgive all that if he were to testify. And all he had to do was play by the rules. But he was too stupid to realize that if he just would play by the rules, he probably would be out and he would have finished his life. Uh, he probably might not have died from COVID-19. Right, he could have been alive now. I mean, he, realistically, he could have been alive. But he was just – I mean, you, you've said it multiple times here, and the right word is just lunatic, right? I mean – we talked about it, even at 19, he's out here just committing random murders, you know, with unsanctioned murders at 19 years old. You know, he's going after family members. He's going after John Gotti and Frank DeChico. Like he's just he was an incredibly violent, dangerous man. Yeah, I think, um, you know, maybe one of these days, you know, once we get through a lot of people, we'll have to do a uh, top 10 lunatic show. Uh <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think you can make a strong case for Casso being top five. I mean, he was a. Yes. I, I, we'll never know how many people were actually killed 
on the instructions of Anthony Casso or by Anthony Casso, but um, it, it was a lot. I mean, Anthony was a uh, a wild dude, and you know, he really continues to kind of drive home the point. And we've talked about this on really every show we've done so far. There are true Cosa guys, and there are guys that maybe they're earners or they're good enforcers or whatever. It's hard to be both. Anthony Casso surely was both. He never became boss, which again was strictly from him because he didn't want to be the boss. He could have been the boss. Um, and he, you know, you can make the case. He might still be boss if, if he doesn't, uh, you know, get jammed up or who the hell knows what happens, but it's possible, um, but yeah, I mean, listen, he's definitely top five, dude. I mean, we've talked about Burton Kaplan when we did the mafia cops yeah. and Burton Kaplan, when he testified called Anthony Casso quote, a homicidal maniac. Well, that's exactly what it was. I mean, that's, that, that's something. Yeah. I mean, look, no, 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 you know, no disrespect to Burton Kaplan, but I mean, Burton Kaplan was right there with him, though. So I don't know. I, I always find that funny when like witnesses call other people like homicidal maniacs or, you know, it's yeah, like, well, I mean, yeah, well, Casso did the same thing, right? I mean, he's going yeah. after Gravano when Casso was involved in drug dealing for decades, you know, and look, Anthony Casso, if you take out the uh, killing of, an attempted killing of, of family members. And the fact that he informed um, he was probably the who's who of mobsters, frankly, yeah. I, I, you know, but as we've seen with Joe Messino and with Anthony Casso, um, you know, Anthony Casso was a fucking scumbag at the end of the day. He was willing to do all this shit yet when it mattered most, he wasn't trying to die in prison. And I highly recommend if you get 15 minutes, go on YouTube, watch the, uh, watch just the, the, the acting job he puts on in that 60 minutes interview. I mean, it's just, <laughs> he's a fascinating dude, man. He really is. Um, but uh, there you go. Anthony Casso, uh, one of the biggest lunatics you don't know of, but now you know about him. Uh, so that's that for the show this week. Uh, as always, uh, make sure if you're new around here, you're checking out the show for the first time, uh, make sure you subscribe, make sure you uh, hit five stars. If you enjoy what we're doing, leave us a comment. Uh, follow us on Twitter at the sit down seven, uh, reach out to us, whether it's me, whether it's blackjack, let us know what you want to hear. Let us know what you want to talk about. And, uh, you know, if you have a question, we're, we're always welcome to answer. Uh, as I said, maybe down the road, we'll do some sort of Q and a or something, but, uh, there you have it. Another show, another sit down blackjack. Love it, man. Fascinating guy, you know, interesting story again. So another great episode in the books. Yep. We'll be back next week. Uh, we'll have another new uh, mobster. Maybe we'll do drug dealer. Who the hell knows? There's always something on the sit down. Uh, I'm the big man on campus, Jeff Nadu. He's Blackjack Fletcher. We'll see you next week here on the sit down. <laughs>